In this episode of the SAS Communication Journal Club podcast, we talk about scientific curiosity, the lasting interest in science, and how these two affect the trust in climate scientists and what we do with a very, very special guest. But first things first, a bit about us. Hello and welcome to the SciComm JC podcast, your one-stop shop for effective and impactful science communication approaches. SciComm JC is sponsored by Captive Touch, a company offering consulting and training for strategic science communication. At SciComm JC, we aim to help scientists integrate findings from the latest evidence-based research in social sciences and education into their outreach efforts. We curate, summarize and discuss research studies and their applications to real communication contexts in a way that scientists can easily implement. Today we, ha- we have behind the mics the usual suspects, Sherry, Heather, Mina Vena, Maria unfortunately is out because she's busy with other human stuff, and a very special guest. He participated at our latest Twitter chat this past week. He's a sci-fi writer. He's also the creator of a fictional travel agency, which became so much more than that, and he's going to definitely tell us more about it soon. His name? Alex Martin. Hi, everyone. Hey guys. Hi. Hi. He is also a winner of the State Your Mission Challenge. Sherry, do you want to tell us a bit more about that? Sure. Every year uh, in January, we announce a challenge and we invite um, those who are working or hoping to work in the science communication field, or even if they're not in the field, if they just want to do some science communication, to write a mission statement and enter their mission statement for winning a prize and recognition, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's, it's been very fun and it's amazing what we've been able to discover. And one of our most amazing discoveries was Alex's work. So, um, yeah. So let's give Alex the chance to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about, a little bit more about what he really does. Take it away, Alex. Hey, so um, I am a science fiction author through and through. Uh, I've been writing science fiction books for more than 15 years now, uh, ever since I was 11 years old. So it is quite literally my life and it's just what I do. I have seven books that are published, another one coming out next October in 2020. And these science fiction books, eventually, you know, they grew and evolved into me wanting to, you know, not just entertain people through science fiction, but to educate people through science fiction. And by doing that, I eventually started this science uh, website for the books, which began as this travel agency, uh, Experience Deliona. But then, you know, that fictional take on everything led to a science blog on the website. And then that science blog became a series of science videos where I would interview people in public, on the street, in public parks and places, to just kind of have this dialogue and just have these set, this set of guided questions with them about a certain topic in science. And then eventually, after about four or five months of doing that, uh, I eventually created Sidewalk Science Center in Savannah, Georgia, where I would take a table of science experiments and just let people be hands-on and learn a series of concepts while they're staying there for about you know five minutes at the shortest. And some people will honestly stay up to an hour, hour and a half. So it's a very fun, uh, open experience for anyone who walks by. And it all started with writing science fiction. That's so awesome. It really sounds very interesting indeed, having the chance to see science experiments just 
on the sidewalk, as it were. I recently saw a tweet from you that you only, I think, recently started counting how many people you actually entertained slash educated with your science yeah. experiments. What's the count so far, the estimate? So I've only done it uh, twice in November uh, so far. So November 1st and 2nd uh, are the only days I've hosted Sidewalk Science Center so far this month. And have another giant event tomorrow for the transit of Mercury going across the face of the sun. But between November 1st, when I had about 70 people uh, come through, and then November 2nd, when I had 129 people come through. So wow. wow. Literally 200 people. So I've always said, you know, it feels like I'm averaging about 100 people a day. And here and there, I'll try to like, keep counting my head. But, you know, if I am averaging 100 people a day, and so far, you know, across two counted data sets, that seems to be the average, then, you know, by myself, one table traveling up and down the East Coast and recently out to Colorado, then I've probably had somewhere around 10,000 people. Wow. That's, That's amazing. amazing. And you have both grown-ups and kids stopping by? Yep, yep. I would say, awesome. you know, it's probably 60% kids under 10 and then 40% wow. everyone else from teenagers to students to in, especially in Colorado, I was like near a, a university, the uh, University of Colorado at Boulder. So I had a bunch of professors and people who were studying like PhDs and stuff come through, come through there also. Awesome. But, uh, yeah, Alex, very, do, you have, do you have to get a permission to do that? Yes. Yeah. Some places you need a permit. Some places you don't need a permit. So for the Colorado one, I did need a permit uh, where I was in Boulder. Uh, but in Savannah, I needed a permit just to be like, hey, we're, we know that you're doing this. Where I live right now, uh, where I come, where I'm kind of headquartered, I don't need a permit. I see. That's, That's cool. A lot of effort. So it's a nice segue as well to actually the topic of our last Twitter chat. We spoke about an article that was published in Nature Climate Change uh, with the title "The Enduring Effect of Scientific Interest on Trust in Climate Scientists in the United States." It was written by Matthew Mota. I hope I pronounced his name right. Um, so who's going to introduce that topic or that article to us? Well, actually, uh, since Alex chose the article, um, I think that it, he should be the one summarizing the findings. And, and it sounds like you really know what you're doing in, in that context, yeah. Alex. So why don't you introduce a little bit what that article was about? Yeah, so uh, the article itself, you know, it's all about, you know, it's focusing on climate science and people's attitudes uh, on these climate science and their trust in, in government organizations or universities or, you know, just science popularizers. And, you know, it's based on their level of, you know, not just their interest, but their ability also in science. And what the study found is that people who have more ability in science are actually less likely to, to uh, trust you know, the government institutions, whereas the interest in science showed an all-around uh, increase in trust across all factors uh, of the, of the uh, study, the head studied. So was it a longitudinal study? Can you describe a little bit more how it was done? Yeah. Um, so they mostly used uh, a, a, a data set of, you know, where the critical point in education really is. And that is in the, for us here, here in the U.S., it's about 12 to 14 years old when you're in your middle school. 
uh, your middle school range. And uh, they collected the data from 1987 all the way up uh, to around 2011, uh, just to see different trends throughout, you know, as we're leaving this age of like the post information to now where we're uh, very much engaged with social media. So we haven't really collected too much data from this new age of technology and information that's available to the masses. But yeah, so it started back in uh, 1987. Was there, Alex, was there anything in there? Because this is uh, pretty interesting and pretty rare, um, at least from where I, from what I understand, um, doing longitudinal research, which is difficult, expensive. Um, but was there anything that showed um, sort of a difference in terms of mindset between um, like previous generation, or not generations, but previous um, years before social media really became so prominent and such a major source of where people are getting their information and now? Um, was there any sort of gap in terms of time? Yeah, they didn't really have that so much so far, simply because, I mean, it's such a recent era, so we haven't really been able to see this age range really progressing to adults yet. So most of the data collected is pre-2000. Okay, thank you. And are they following the same people when it says longitudinal? Did they start um, with some people that at their age of, the, a younger age, adolescent, and then follow them over the years? How did that work? Because it began in 1987. So it's followed up with this set of students several times throughout adulthood. Okay and uh, that the data was modeled um, as a function of scientific interest uh, with comprehension variables throughout junior high. That's wonderful. So they followed the same people over their lifetime. Yeah. That's great. I have another question about the, the methodology of the study. So um, they do mention, well, the author mentions that um, the pivotal age seems to be between 12, 14 years of age. Um, what is it about American education in science that gives us that range? Is it when you really start having more advanced science classes or what is it? Because I'm coming from Europe and obviously I, yeah. I don't know the first thing about American education. So, I mean, at least in my experience and experiences with other people who I know throughout like college and, and even just growing up in high school, you know, you go from moving from very conceptual math and science mm -hmm. to more experience-based and applied science okay. uh, at that at that age range. Like as soon as you enter high school, you're doing a lot more labs. You're doing a lot more like hands-on math, like actually using functions and numbers. Whereas prior to that, you know, it's all practice and just kind of getting used to these systems. But then when you have to start applying it, that 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 twelve to fourteen uh, age range is like like where you know we quote unquote weed people out and it can be very daunting for a lot of people <laughs> especially people who don't see themselves as being strong in these areas i know several people who say you know i'm not smart enough to, to, to do this when it's you know different counties in different states where i came from it was a very good like standardized state like we had a lot of kids who were great in math great in science but then even living uh, down in uh, Savannah, Georgia, where I started doing this, it's like their school systems were some of the lowest in the country. And, you know, you could just see this huge difference in one education system versus another. And even where I live now, they only introduced a STEM program into their public schools at the beginning of uh, 2019. 
Wow. So <laughs> it's it's kind of scary seeing, you know, we have this huge gap, even in the younger kids, like in their elementary schools. Like, so how's that going to carry over as they're growing up and going to high school? Like, how prepared are they to mm. take on these labs and the actual science? Well, and that's what the study really um, touched on, right? And that was what our Twitter chat kind of focused on too, um, was really the, the kind of the difference in cultivating that interest uh, versus the the actual like uh, ability to comprehend or that sort of um, yeah. substantive knowledge base of like how to do science. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So in the Twitter chat then, I mean, what, what, what all did we learn or what kind of insights came up? Uh, so... The biggest thing that I saw in the study was with just basic science interest. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Like the basic science interest we have all across uh, like professors and environment departments and NASA, NOAA, the IPCC, and just the standardized index. Interest showed the positive uh, uh, increase in trust, whereas the ability to do science and like having factual scientific knowledge had a lower increase in trust percentages because just a correlation, I would, I would make this assumption of the correlation with being, uh, you know, if you have more data and you're more familiar with the data, then if you start seeing trends or people are doing it wrong or something, then you're going to be like, I don't trust this group of people who's, who's, you know, mm. especially with environmental departments in government, like clearly something is going on there. If, if in both when you have the ability and the knowledge that you that there's a negative uh, associated trust compared to just interest where it was positive across the board so as a science professor i am i'm looking at the chart right now the time which is the increase or decrease in trust versus as opposed to as compared to interest ability and knowledge there is a positive association with all of them for trust in science professor, which yeah, is great. Yeah. <laughs> it's even bigger in the ability and knowledge categories. So. Yeah. How did they measure um, trust? Is, was it just, do you trust your science professor or what? Yeah, I think that was just, you know, who would you rather go to for this information or, or trust in, trust in uh, assessing these policies? I see. Okay. So it seems like just looking um, on this chart, the only one that had a slightly negative effect um, in response to knowledge, as far as knowledge is concerned, is government departments. Yep. And quantitative ability. Uh, I have a question to that, actually, because it, it's pretty interesting. Indeed, it's the only one that is even a little bit on the negative side of, of the effect when you have actual scientific skills and abilities and and um, any measurable significant science knowledge. Um, do you think that that has something to do with the fact that people might be a bit more... Um, skeptical? Yeah, thank you. A bit yeah. more skeptical to actually what a governmental institution, which might be heavily politicized, say? Or do yeah. you think it also has something to do with the fact that these experts might not necessarily as easily approachable as uh, all the other science professors and even the national agencies experts. 
Well, we've talked about this quite a bit, um, you know, in previous podcasts and um, during previous, you know, uh, Twitter chats that we've had um, about this idea of sort of um, how people are socialized, so um, how they're raised, the people they're surrounded by, um, the different values, and then, of course, the ideology component um, and how that, you know, shapes people's views and their trust in science and scientific scientific institutions over time, where maybe one of the differences is um, with those that are younger, they're still in that process of be molded, if you will, where by the time they reach adulthood, then those things are more fully formed. And so that might be kind of an interesting question to look at using this data um, for future research on uh, trust in science and scientific institutions between uh, younger kids um, and then as they age into adults and sort of seeing that crystallization potentially of ideology and the effects of socialization maybe on their levels of trust. It says, uh, you know, whether or not these results hold using alternate measures of ideology is an interesting avenue for future research. So this study was more a broad study that didn't account for what, whatever way you lean or how, how you're raised kind of thing. Um, I thought that was a really interesting point on, during our Twitter chat that, uh, that Alex, you had posted um, the comment, we end up in a feedback loop where we might see people with proper resources reinforcing uh, interest and ability, whereas people lacking proper resources, um, there's a degrade of interest and ability. And I thought that was a really interesting comment because we have had this conversation before. Uh, we just did a Twitter chat and a podcast on inclusion in science. Um, from a public participation standpoint, um, just you know, quite a few months ago, and so this conversation of lack of resources and accessibility to science um, keeps coming up. And in my view, a lack of resources doesn't actually mean a lack of interest. And I think that this study that we're looking at here, and what your comment brings to light, um, is that that's true. And so, what do we do? How do we make science more accessible? This is personally speaking about how I how I run Sidewalk Science Center. Um, both places where I've done this in Savannah, Georgia, and uh, down here in Brainton, Florida, come from areas where there is not too much of a, you know, academic background or academic uh, influence of science education. Um, Savannah, Georgia itself is a very artsy place with a lot of history, so we don't even have a science center uh, down there. And where, where I live, I work at the only science center that we have, and it's a pretty small one. But uh, it's like, how do you fill this void? And I, both areas also had large homeless populations. So, and I've seen down here, you know, there are also, uh, there's, there's a children, homeless children population down here too, whereas Savannah didn't really have that. And I... <laughs> I haven't looked too much into like the, the true demographics of, of where I'm living right now, but you know, I do get my repeat people who say, you know, like we're not learning this in school. Like, you know, it's, it's all so standardized to just these specific things and they don't have these hands-on experiences in school. Which basically from experience means that they're not getting the most interesting part. I mean, I yeah. remember in school, the, the most fun and exciting things were the actual experiments. And those are the things that stuck and help to, yeah. to remember the, the actual factual things that you might or might not use in the end. So that really adds up a lot to that building interest to sci towards science. That's curiosity being developed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Actually, when I survey my students, uh, 
I usually ask them what, especially in the beginning of the semester, I ask them which part of the course you liked best and least. And all of them say the part of the cor course that they like the best is labs because they get to do stuff with their hands and apply what they learn. And this, this also goes for, I, I mean, most of, the, most of the kids I see at Sidewalk Science Center, you know, it's below 10 years old, like somewhere in the first, second, third grade age range. But I've also, I work with the Girl Scouts too. And I get the girls who are somewhere in like the 14 years old area. And they have said the same things that the younger kids are saying. So it's not even something that's like just one age age range. It's, I've seen it across this spectrum of like six to 14 years or so. That's interesting. Wow. I was having some conversation with some uh, professors and TAs a few days ago. And one of the things they asked me is to how do I get um, scientists engaged so they're listening to me or paying attention. And I basically told them you have to be an entertainer. So that part of making science interesting um, makes a big difference. And it, this study seems to support that, that interest um, plays a very big role. That's, that's actually bringing up the entertainer thing because like, every time I look for a permit, it's always for something entertainment wise. It's never for educational wise. There's, oh, nice. It's, it's all, like my Savannah permit was for a performer, but I'm, like, I'm not performing. I'm, I'm kind of, I just have the stuff laid out here so that other people can do things. Like it's, I think having even talks with like city councils would help to, to, to bring this more into like the public perspective, like bring it to the, the forefront of the discussion, like kind of change how, how, how we see these, these, I, I always hear them called like pop-up science events and stuff, mm -hmm. but it's like, I don't feel like this is a pop-up science event because I do it every single week, usually, usually every single week, just based on weather and stuff. But you know, it's three times a week I'm out there. So it's not like a pop-up. It's, part of the community now and people expect me to be there and if we can get this like across the country just and, and into other cities around the world like just having that regular consistent engagement with the community and like driving these conversations i love it the the two things that i think i have seen are the most effective and i'll kind of preface this real quick i started this as like a science program and what I've found that it has evolved into is just like a community program that just happens to have a scientific central focus. It's a place where, you know, all these kids who I see on a regular basis now come together for like team building exercises. And like, I've seen friendships form over the past six months or so. Oh my God. And like kids who did not hang out together when I saw them all coming separately. Now they know each other and they hang out together when they're there. <laughs> So it's like, it's helping to build that, but it's also with what I mentioned earlier about like the six to 14 age range, how they're kind of saying the same mm -hmm. things. They say those things after they're able to have a conversation about what they're learning. Like it's not just the teacher speaking to them all day, but they're able to have a back and forth engagement. And I think that's what they need. They need to be able to flex their own muscles in thinking and not just sit there and absorb everything. Like, give them that chance to, to have a say on their own terms. And I honestly think the sign, that's what the scientific, more secular part of uh, our lives, that's what it's missing. A, a way it's, of forming community around. 
around knowledge and science and thinking and things like that. And I can see this, Alex, uh, to be a great, for example, if you make it a package, um, I can see it being a valuable thing as a part of a service learning for for students in universities, or it could be a great way for um, people who are doing teaching, teachers who are um, training to be science teachers, that could be part of their earning credit or some of their, you know, practicum. Um, that's, your, your work has um, potential to just explode and you're just working out the kinks and that's amazing, I think. That is like part of the reason I, I tried to tour this. I, I do like, you know, showing up at one spot all the time because it really gets engaged with the community. But a big thing of why I went to uh, Colorado at the beginning of October was to test it in a new environment where I knew there was a high level of like I think Boulder Colorado has they say has the highest like density of PhD uh, PhDs uh, living there so I took this from a very you know, non-academic area to a very academic area and I was trying to see what differences are there and I will say <laughs> that changing my location in Boulder, Colorado by 100 feet went from being a super slow day to a super packed day. What was the difference? I, I just, the, the first location was kind of like sideways to the, to the path, whereas the second location was like front facing the path. So people were looking at it and it was like, I kind of had my back to this little like, garden spot so you know people were just more able to gather as compared to just stop in the as they're walking so I don't like yeah I mean something as small as moving by 100 feet literally went from having maybe three people in like a half hour to having more than 100 in the next hour that's really great advice, Alex, for anyone who's um, out in the community doing um, science communication and science engagement work, is that location, location, location really it's matters. So, and thinking about where you are in the environment that you're in. Even even down here in Brainton, um, when I first started doing it on January 6th of this year in Brainton, uh, when I moved down here, I was at this one spot along the Riverwalk and, you know, just your standard sidewalk, Riverwalk, and, and uh somebody mentioned to me, Hey, you should go down to the playground. And, you know, I was getting maybe 40 to 50 people a day at the, at the original location. And then I went to the playground and I haven't looked back because I'm getting a hundred plus people. <laughs> so. See, there you go. That is excellent as a, an applied tool that everybody could walk away with. So thank you for sharing that. And I think that one more thing I just want to kind of reiterate in terms of accessibility. Um, you said two things that were like, two words that were really important, I think, from an engagement standpoint and from getting everybody involved who's interested or wants to be interested in science, regardless of where they are socioeconomically or whatever. Um, It's regular, consistent participation or regular, consistent, yeah, being out there. And I think that that, that's a really important piece of that because the sort of pop-up events like you had alluded to, you know, they're kind of one-offs. And so if they're not there consistently, there's no way that you can build visibility or build trust um, in a specific community. So I think being out there on a regular basis where people start to see you and they start to know 
you're really part of that. I think that's huge. And, and you're already doing that, Alex, but for anybody else who's listening to this podcast, I think that that's a really important take, you know, thing to think about um, for, for doing science communication and getting people involved who may not otherwise be able to be involved uh, or wouldn't necessarily think of it until they see you regularly, until they see, you know, whoever is doing this kind of work regularly, it's really hard to build trust and identity and visibility and accessibility. So I just, I think those are some things that, you know, I want to leave some of our listeners with um, who are looking for tangible ways to actually improve their um, science outreach activities. Alex, um, where can people find you and get in touch with you if they want to maybe start something similar in their area or pick your brain a little bit and understand how to do their activity better? On both Facebook and Instagram, uh, it is Experience Deliona. And you'll see the Sidewalk Science Center uh, logo pop up and all that. On Twitter, it's at exp, so E-X-P-D-A-L Science. So we'll also add links uh, in the show notes to all those accounts. You said that tomorrow you have a big event that uh, yes. unfortunately will be a bit late to invite people when <laughs> this podcast is actually out. But where can people see your events otherwise? Uh, so Facebook has a list of all of the events. Ah, um, awesome. So even if you just type in Sidewalk Science Center on Facebook, it will come back to us. Great. So, uh, but that is the Transit of Mercury and it's a five and a half hour event. Wow. Kind of, <laughs> kind of, it's, it's just, this happens once every 13 years, essentially. So it's a see or miss it kind of thing. Alex, do you have a kind of a kit or a checkbox or something people can see on your website or somewhere to see, okay, I want to get this started. What do I need? So I don't have the full kit for the, for the, the table yet, like to actually start your own. Um, but I do sell uh, smaller smaller ones that focus on uh, topics. So the one I'm actually, it's the second run I'm doing of this, but this is all about force. And it's a $30 kit that has an 84 page booklet with experiments and uh, practice doing equations where you follow along uh, various uh, systems and applications. And then facts about forces and how we use them and like how we kind of discover them and then a glossary. So, oh wow! <laughs> I was just looking for a, for a science Christmas gift for my niece. I think yes. I just found it. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, hey, uh, and Alex, yeah. you are an amazing resource. I just want to give you like another, you know, I mean, major shout out here. It, you're an amazing resource for for doing science communication in a fun, tangible, accessible way. Um, so I really hope that all of our listeners who are out there are interested in science outreach do connect with you because you're an amazing resource for how to do this with all of the resources that you provide to people on how to do these kinds of things on their own. I mean, you seem to have like everything here. And you're doing that yourself, right? Yeah, I, I don't make money from this right now. Like eventually I do want to become like my full-time job down the road. But right now I... Kind of, I've done everything I've done in the past 16 months for like less than 1500 Wow. Well, so, I hope that down the road is a very one. short road because it's really worth it. <laughs> <laughs> I've kind of measured it out. It's about for every 18 cents, it's like five or six people can be at the table. So Wow. That's amazing. So, I mean, thank you for, for being here with us and thank you for sharing all this. Thanks very much, Alex, for this. It was awesome. But unfortunately, that's all we had time for today. 
um, keep us posted about your future events and, and your experiences and how your uh, activities grow. I'm sure there's a lot more to see coming out of, of your sidewalk science events and, and all the other things that we're doing. Also, you said next year is your next book coming out? Yeah, October 2020. Uh, awesome. I need to catch series. up in the meantime with the previous ones. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sherry, tell us about our next Twitter chat. Our next Twitter chat will be about methodology for evaluating science communication through social media. And our guest uh, is going to be one of the authors of the paper I'll be summarizing. Her name is Lisa Lundgren. Uh, she um, basically, she, that's what she did her PhD in to evaluate science communication through the tools of social media. So we're going to uh, focus on methodology and tools to really see how we can evaluate our effectiveness on these tools of social media, which is really not an easy thing to do. And that's going to be this month in November? December 3rd. Oh, December 3rd. Yes. Okay, get it done in your calendars, people. Yeah. <laughs> and make sure to follow us on Twitter at SciComm underscore JC to be able to participate and to know more. Uh, also, don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter to receive updates for all our upcoming events, Twitter chats, podcast releases, and summaries of very interesting SciCommy topics from our website. To do that, go to our website, www.psychomjc.org, and that's psychom with double M, jc.org. If you're interested in doing an internship, you can also do that with our team. We'll be more than happy to have passionate about science communication and research people help us out and join our efforts. Get in touch with us again via the website and we'll get together, put our heads together and figure out what would be the best way for the team and for you to collaborate. Psychom JC is sponsored by Captive Touch, a company offering consulting and training for strategic science communication. It is recorded by the Psychom JC team, produced and edited by me, Evena Kristalzova. Our music is composed by Musical Cocktail from Audio Jungle. Thank you for joining this 13th episode of the Psychom JC podcast. If you liked it, let us know and please share it with your friends, family and your grandma. Till next time and stay nerdy. <laughs>